0: Well, folks, Randy Newberg here for another episode of Hunt Talk Radio, Randy Newberg Unfiltered. And today I am doing the Merle Haggard thing. I got turned loose in the middle of Montana, Lewistown, Montana, to be exact. And I am here with uh, a guy who I've respected since I first found his writings a long, long time ago. Um, He's an author of At least 20 books, uh, related to outdoor activities. He's a writer, uh, in his real world. He's a doctor, uh, based on the number of dog kennels I see in his yard here. He's definitely a dog lover, former brown bear guide in Alaska, uh, private pilot. And probably if you asked him exactly what he is, he'd probably say he's a hunter and, uh, if any of you are wondering who this is, I'll tell you right now, it's Don Thomas. Uh, and Don has become a little more of a known name in the hunting and conservation world in the last three weeks than probably he expected. So, Don, thanks for uh, accepting my invitation to, to come on to the podcast and and talk. My pleasure, Randy. It's uh, It's been, what, three
1: weeks since uh, your. are your hunting season got disrupted? <laughs> <laughs> Three weeks to the day. And uh, if it happens again, I hope it doesn't happen during hunting season. <laughs> <laughs> well, for those of you who are wondering what we're referring to,
0: Don, for, I guess, 14, 15 years, you had the back column of the DU mag- Ducks Unlimited magazine, correct? That's correct, Randy. And uh, you were... And, and Uh, Before we even start, Don, you've made a point that, Randy, if I do this, I want to make sure people know this isn't about me grinding an axe. It it isn't about the Don Thomas story. It's about bigger,
1: bigger issues. Uh, Absolutely correct, Randy. I I work with a number of magazines. I have a a lot of outlets for my writing. I'll miss the back page column and do you. But this is certainly not about me or a job. Um, I, I think that events... Um, revealed some underlying problems in the outdoor and conservation community that affect everyone who hunts or fishes, for that matter, in the United States. And I think I would like to direct the conversation in that direction rather than making it about me personally. Right.
0: So for those of you who maybe have been out of country or slept under a rock for the last three weeks, um, Don wrote a column for a a small publication in Bozeman, Montana called Outside Bozeman. And he highlighted an issue that it's not just the Montana issues. We, we hear about it in other states. Utah's recently had a big push about stream access, uh, a lot of back and forth and, and a final decision by their courts. But for the background, I'm going to tell the, the listener that in Montana, we have what's called the stream access law. And the stream access law says that in Montana, any navigable stream, you are allowed to navigate up and down that for purposes of fishing or whatever. So long as you stay between the high water marks, I, I'm oversimplifying here, but, and that was, and, and you've done a lot of research on this, Don. So if I'm skipping over something, fill in where I'm, I'm missing. But uh, that was a court case that, got heard and some people didn't like it. So it ended up in the Montana Supreme Court. Is that correct? That's correct. And the Supreme Court confirmed that, yes, the states own the riverbeds between the high water marks and therefore it's pub quote unquote public land. That's correct. Whereas if you go to other states, you will find that if you float that stream, there might be a fence across that stream. Or if you try to wade that stream adjacent to private land, someone will come and say you're trespassing.
1: That's right, and of course it varies from state to state, and Utah recently made real progress in their stream access law. I was recently talking to a friend who had floated the bighorn in Wyoming, and of course, the bighorn is a famous trout stream in montana, uh, and it's uh, great fishing in Wyoming, but guess what you can't drop an anchor when you're floating the bighorn because right. the stream bed belongs to the landowner yeah,
0: and so here here's a, it's going to take us a few minutes to give you the background of of how uh this really became a big issue uh, across the nation. I've read it in, did I read it in the New York Times? You did? This made the New York Times. I've read it in multiple regional uh, publications, uh, both digitally uh, in print. But anyhow, we have a situation in Montana, like in a lot of other states, where very wealthy non-resident landowners come and buy property here, and they don't like the law as it's written. And rather than say, well, I don't like Montana's stream access law, they come here, buy property, try to stop people from accessing, and even go so far as to try to get our laws changed. And there's a case that's been, how long has this, it, In in the background is there's a uh, Mr. Kennedy is a landowner from Georgia, I believe. Correct. Um, he's been litigating this because of his property on the Ruby River in southwest Montana. Uh, quite a while
1: he's been involved in this. I, I should be able to give you those dates, but I can't give you them precisely off the top of my head. This has been going on for about 10 years, and the court cases are very, very complicated, by the way. Um, but uh, after purchasing uh, this ranch, which borders the Ruby River, uh, Mr. Kennedy physically barred access from what had been uh, a well-established public access uh, point to the Ruby River over a bridge on a little road called Sailor Lane Um, and he put up electric fences and barbed wire fences in places that people had used to access the river for years and years and this was a you know cross-section of Montana recreationists, a lot of fly fishermen, kids just floating the river in in the summer, and all of a sudden you you physically couldn't get there, even though the prior landowner had had allowed uh, that access for years, and even though the road was a public road and the bridge was a public bridge. And a group called the Public Land and Water Access Association in Montana uh, challenged that decision. Uh, or challenged his decision to bar access, and uh, through a series of tortuous uh, court decisions, it wound up in the Montana Supreme Court. During the proceedings uh, in front of the Montana Supreme Court, uh, at one point, uh, one of the Supreme Court justices asked uh, one of the Kennedy attorneys are you asking the Supreme Court to rule the Montana Constitution unconstitutional? <laughs> and the answer was yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, to, to audience, if you can think about that, an attorney stands in front of the Montana Supreme Court and says, you justices, please rule in our favor that would say the Montana Constitution is unconstitutional. That's that's
1: correct. (laughs) We have it it on video. (laughs) So So, uh, with that background, um, I wrote an article for Outside Bozeman, which appeared in the October 2015 issue of that magazine. Outside Bozeman is a regional publication. It's a very nice publication, the editor's yep. name Mike England, who's a stand-up guy, to say the very least. <laughs> the tone of that article was pointed, and um, uh, Ducks Unlimited took exception with the tone to the article. Um, sometimes you write to entertain, sometimes you write to inform. Uh, I deliberately took a pointed Tone in this article because my goal was to draw attention to uh, what I felt was a, a critical issue. Access. Access. Yeah. Access. The facts, as reported in the article, have never been challenged and the opinions are protected by the First Amendment. Uh, that's fairly straightforward. It's important to realize that the access to the Ruby River and the Montana Stream Access Law uh, involves a lot more than people just floating and fishing. Um, the entire economy of southwest montana including this whole area bozeman livingston west yellowstone save for agriculture outdoor recreation and tourism is it, it that's it that's the economic base uh, of this whole quadrant of the state and the Supreme Access, uh, Stream Access Law is is crucial uh, to, to these industries, uh, and they are industries uh, that that may sound like an exaggerated term, but that's how a whole lot of people in this part of Montana make their living. Make their living. Yeah, definitely, definitely. This is uh, this would be a huge economic catastrophe for the whole region if if the Stream Access Law were to be overturned. Yeah,
0: and, and I, you could. Almost overlay that to places in Oregon, oh be, certainly, places in um, Pencil, yeah. upstate New York, anywhere. places in the UP of Michigan, of absolutely. So this is a, a a topic that is relevant pretty much anywhere there is water and fishermen.
1: Sure, you know the uh the original Supreme Court case and I should have this at my fingertips. Uh but it goes back to the early 1800s. Right. One of the first cases involved uh access to Oyster beds in uh, uh, the estuary of a Missouri, uh, uh, river in New Jersey. And uh, I mean, this is a 200 year old Supreme Court decision that established that flowing waters basically belong to the, pu- the public. Right. So this isn't a new idea. This has been around for a long time. It's right. been infringed upon <laughs> heavily. But okay. the, the legal precedent has been there for 200 years. Right. And
0: so the, when we talk, uh, get into this next step. I, I want to just interject that nobody I know, not Don, not me, not anyone, would ever say that a private landowner cannot. You know, protect their private property rights as identified under the Fifth Amendment.
1: Oh, ab- absolutely right. And uh, you know, some of the rubric uh, from the, the people challenging the Supreme Access Law has been couched in terms of private property rights. Uh, I'm a Montana landowner. I believe in private property rights. And I have never heard anyone uh, on our side of the argument suggest otherwise. Uh, right. Mr. Kennedy and everyone else is entitled to do whatever's legal uh, on their private property. No one's ever disputed that. Right. The,
0: the rub came that someone, and, and it happens very often, any of you who live in places where you have a lot of non-resident land ownership, you've probably seen this trend where they bring whatever their land ethic is from where they come, and they try to bring that with them where they end up or where they buy property. And unfortunately, in this case, it's kind of a... Kick in the crotch to the idea of public
1: access. Very much so. You know, uh, I've I've been around uh, Montana for 40 years now, and I've seen just tremendous changes in in land use patterns. Montana has become a popular place. Uh, The the idea of the trophy ranch uh, has emerged heavily in the last decade. There was an article, I believe, in the Bozeman paper within the last. couple of months about the number of ranches selling for more than $10 million uh, in, in Montana and how it's quadrupled in the last four or five years. These are not being purchased for primary agricultural purposes. <laughs> no, they're they're not running cows no, or, no. or uh, bailing hay. No, well, they may be, but they're certainly not making their livelihood uh, that way. Right and uh so the the entire pattern of montana land use has has changed, and this has had a huge impact on uh, not just Montana residents but a lot of visitors to montana as well and I guess one point i 'd make is that um, these people are certainly intelligent and informed they knew what the Montana stream access law was when they bought these properties exactly uh, it wasn 't a secret uh, And just as a matter of general good matters, it is not a good idea (laughs) to to, to try to impose your will contrary to local, not just custom, but local law when you arrive in a new area.
0: Yeah, and... So another piece of background that people, and what what we're talking about here, I travel the West hunting, and I see this same trend in New Mexico. I see it in Colorado. I see it in Utah, Mm -hmm. Wyoming. I I see it everywhere, everywhere. as as you do. Um, But in Montana, we rewrote our state constitution. I can't remember if it was in 71 or 72. That's approximately right, yeah. And... So it's not like this is some old 300-year-old archaic law. Mm-hmm. This is something that Montanans said, we have the right to a clean and healthful environment. We have the right blah, blah, blah. One of the things that the state said at that time is we are going to own the navigable waterways of Montana. And that was never challenged until now. Right. So now I'm going to connect the next dots. So Don has written for Ducks Unlimited for years, since,
1: I don't know, 98,
0: was it, your first? Uh,
1: 98 was my first publication there, and I've written the back page column beginning in 2001. So that's every issue for almost 15 years. Yeah, Yeah, it's been a long time. And so now here's
0: where the dots get connected once we've given you the background. The person who we referred to earlier that Don had explained the lawsuit uh, or the litigation uh, of Mr. Kennedy uh, is very, uh, he has a lot of leadership positions within Ducks Unlimited, um, has been a very generous donor to Ducks Unlimited. And just for sake of full disclosure, uh, I, myself, Don, many of you listening, have done a lot of volunteerism for Ducks Unlimited. Uh, we've made a lot of financial contributions. So this is, you know, I, I feel conflicted in, in bringing this story forward because I have such a sweet spot for wetlands conservation. I I was so committed to Ducks Unlimited for years. I I chaired their local chapter with two other guys for six years. Uh, But the the topic we're going to get into here is so important to the future of hunting that I got to set my conflicts aside. And I know Don, you don't want this to be an act grinding, but we're going to talk about what happened here.
1: Well, Absolutely correct. I don't want this to be an axe grinding, and I I share your conflict. Uh, My parents were life sponsors of Ducks Unlimited. I've been a member of Ducks Unlimited uh, essentially my whole adult life. I've gone to banquets. I've made donations of everything from books to hunts. Uh, I hosted an outdoor television show for Ducks Unlimited last year. Uh, I even bought their damn shotgun shells for them. (laughs) (laughs) So so it's
0: not like this is... Two guys sitting here talking, no. figuring out how can we go after those DU guys.
1: No, and DU has done wonderful work uh, on, the gr- on the ground. Uh, no, one, no one challenges that. And they have wonderful employees and wonderful biologists. And I feel very, very badly for all of them to the effect that they're getting caught up with what was really a horrendous decision by the DU leadership. Right. And, and so, I'll apologize to them all. It wasn't my idea. <laughs>
0: and so here's, here's that decision that Don refers to. The article runs in Outside Bozeman where Don has written pointedly, but factually, about this stream access lawsuit and who is the largest, uh, I guess, funder to, to getting Montana's stream access law overturned. And that person happens to be a very large donor in Ducks Unlimited, had leadership positions many, many times in Ducks Unlimited. And, and I don't know the guy, so I, I can't judge him one way or the other. But someone at DU gets a hold of Don's column. We don't know. You know it's purely speculation who or how this process happened, but we, we can tell you what happened at the end. How it happened is, is anyone's, only a few people knowing. Neither of us in, are in not room, tell no. <laughs> <laughs> but someone at Ducks Unlimited gets this outside Bozeman column that is critical of a large DU donor, a former DU leader trying to overturn the stream access law in Montana. And they notify Don that because of that article, his column in the back page of the Ducks Unlimited magazine
1: will no longer be his column. Uh, did I... Yeah, that, right? that's absolutely correct. And, um, you know, I, w- I would like to make the point that at this point I'd like to deflect the con- conversation a bit away from the individual because that's not what it's about at, at this point. I have I, never met this man. Uh, in the article, I did acknowledge that he has made charitable contributions to worthwhile causes. My argument was not with him as an individual. It's with what is documented in the court record. The the actions being taken. And whether
0: his name was Mr. So-and-so, Mr. Smith, Mr. Jones, it doesn't matter.
1: It doesn't matter, and I, I have no direct evidence that he personally instigated uh, my termination. However, um, the one formal written communication that I received from Ducks Unlimited makes it very clear that the only reason for my termination was the outside Bozeman article. There was no problem with my work. Uh, as a matter of fact, it was an extremely popular column. And very popular. My email over the last three weeks has confirmed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so...
0: Here we have a conservation organization that has conserved 12 million acres of wetland in America. Founded in 1937, one of one of the you know one of the leaders, the first, in, yeah, really. in, in hunter yeah. conservationists in in the in this country, making a decision to remove a very respected, a very tenured, long-term writer because of something that is going on completely outside of the DU network.
1: Very, very important point. This was an article about a regional issue in a regional publication. It has national implications. Um, I did not identify myself as representing Ducks Unlimited. This wasn't about Ducks. It wasn't, it wasn't their publication that it was written in. No, 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 no. This had zero to do with Ducks Unlimited, save for the fact that it apparently offended uh, a wealthy donor. Right. And so then that
0: that gets me and I've thought about it a lot down since it's happened because I've just struggled to figure out How can an organization of that size not have internal policies and governance policies that would prevent a decision like this?
1: Well, interestingly enough, they do. (laughs) (laughs) I know they do. Yes, they do. (laughs) And I would certainly invite uh, anyone to look at both the Ducks Unlimited bylaws and their own conflict of interest policy, which all officers and board members are required to review and sign every year. That conflict of interest policy states that officers, and board members of Ducks Unlimited must at all times act in the best interest of Ducks Unlimited and may not use their position to pursue personal topics. Correct. They clearly violated their own conflict of interest policy because what's happened in the last three weeks has not been in the interest of Ducks Unlimited. Not at all.
0: It's, it's, when, when something gets DU that much profile, and <laughs> it's all negative. It's it's not to the benefit no, of
1: DU. No, it has not helped DU, and uh, I regret that, but <clears throat> my position has always been I have no argument with the many hardworking staffers of DU and the good work they do. There's a disconnect between the leadership in Memphis and the 600,000 grassroots members of this organization, and I don't think the DU board realized the hornet's nest they were kicking when I did this i
0: suspect they did not mm-hmm. i and and even their rebuttal shortly thereafter caused me to say whoever is in charge of uh, communications in right. memphis for ducks unlimited is in a position that's over their talent level and probably the, the they're they're in a pay grade they don't <laughs> they don't uh, deserve it. Uh, Their uh, rebuttal was was quite. It was almost self incriminating.
1: As spin control goes, <laughs> this, this was this was amateur. This, yeah, this yeah, was this amateur. Amateur. Uh, yeah. Both both the one written communication um, that I received uh, and the letter that Ducks Unlimited eventually got backed into putting out referred to the uh, perceived offense to a member of the Ducks Unlimited family. And to me, this begs the question of who is the Ducks Unlimited family? All this stuff I've been doing. What about the 600,000 people who just are members and go to banquets and donate and go out in the marsh and muck around in the mud? I thought those were the members of the Ducks Unlimited family. (laughs) But I have a hard time believing that uh, if I had said uh, one of them was arrogant, that I would have been fired. If you would have wrote an article about Randy Newberg, (laughs) I doubt that you would have been fired. I doubt that. I doubt
0: that. I (laughs) doubt that. (laughs) So it gets me to this kind of quandary of what happened there. And I can only boil it down to one of two things, uh, and neither of us know, but I did... Did the offended person and large donor and leader um, of DU contact the organization and say, get rid of this guy, which is one option. I would hope they wouldn't do that because as you stated, it would be an egregious violation of their their governance uh, policies and protocols. Or did someone within DU at a senior staff position say, you know what? we got to protect this guy because he gives us a lot of money and Don, there's the door. Either of those outcomes are disturbing to me.
1: Well, I think they should be uh, disturbing to all of us. Um, You know, uh, writers... Uh, a lot of people think that it's, it's a glamorous life, uh, and, and you know, maybe if you're writing Harry Potter or <laughs> ho- ho- Hollywood screenplays, but it, it's mostly a lot of hard work. Uh, however, uh, whenever there's a revolution in some third world country, the first thing the new power does is round up all the writers and shoot them. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. kind of nice to get some attention, but <laughs> <laughs> well. my point being that I think uh, a free press uh, and the ability to express opinions such as this, in an open fashion, is crucial to the future of hunting. Um, uh, and I'm sure we will expand on this conversation as we go along. But hunting and angling, by the way, I've been identified as a hunter. I'm also an ardent angler. And hunters and anglers are facing a lot of threats to our future right now. The right. North American model is being attacked as socialism. Yeah. Um, the public tush, trust doctrine is being uh, attacked, and these are the principles that have made North America uh, such an amazing uh, place. Right? Uh, we, we do things here for you know a twenty dollars license that dukes and earls uh, right. can do in Europe. Right. <laughs> I
0: think. Thanks to those two institutions you mentioned, the average American can do things that in other countries is considered the activity of royalty.
1: Absolutely. And, um, you know, both hunting and fishing are big businesses in this country, and um, those numbers are tabulated by others. I I don't need to repeat them for you. But when hunting and fishing become the exclusive province of the rich – it's going to go away. And uh, a lot of people's livelihoods are going to go away with it. Uh, so I, I think there are much bigger issues than me and a back page column involved in what's going on here.
0: And, and if it was just you in a back page column, I don't think your emails would have blown up in the last three weeks. And I don't think <laughs> I don't I'd be think so. here wanting to have this discussion with you because it would have yeah. been just you, yeah. and, you and an editor having a dispute.
1: Yeah, exactly. But
0: you've pointed out There's really three things to me that that have come of this, and it's like the perfect storm of combining them all. One is the silencing of the outdoor media. The other is just the absolute fact that access is is the keystone. It's the pin. It's the corner block of the foundation for hunting and angling in this country. And I guess the other one gets a little stickier is when someone makes a charitable donation for altruistic purposes, whether it's a donation of their time or a donation of their money, how many strings should be attached? And at what point do our groups that represent us as hunters and anglers cross a line that says, you know what? Thanks for your money, but your influence, your your donations of time and money are greatly appreciated, but you're not going to tell us how to run the ship.
1: Well, I think you've hit on a on a key point. And, uh, you know, without naming any particular organizations, and I'm a member of all of them, you know, let's face it, uh, the, the, fill in the blank. It doesn't matter whether it's the Elk Foundation yep. or the Mule Deer Foundation or the Rough Grouse Society or the Wild Turkey Federation. There seems to be a trajectory in all of these donor-driven Wildlife advocacy, hunter-oriented organizations—they start out in very simple fashion. Uh, elk Foundation: four blue-collar guys in Troy, Montana, say, "Hey, let's do something for the elk." And that's a classical example, and I'm not picking on the Elk Foundation here. But and uh, time goes by, and they they run the organization out of a mimeograph machine in the kitchen table, and uh, things grow, and they realize, well, we need a little help here. We need some employees. Uh, They begin to make more money. Somebody realizes uh, the more money we have, the more we can do. And at some point, uh, the bean counters start to get involved and wealthy donors start to get involved. And the grassroots membership uh, tends to get left in the lurch. Um, And again, I'm not picking on any one organization. Um, I, I think the default position, unfortunately, is that organizations lose contact with their grassroots And uh, I think we all need to be aware of that, no matter which of these organizations you belong to. Um, I don't know how the officers in Ducks Unlimited are selected. And guess what? I haven't talked to anybody who does during the course of this three-week fiasco. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, we all write our checks and go to the auctions and and feel good about it. But I, I think we have an obligation to take it one step farther Um, somebody has to watch out for wildlife, no doubt about that, but someone has to watch the watchers too. And I I think that needs to be the grassroots.
0: Yeah. And and in full disclosure, for those of you who don't know, Randy sits on the board of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Mm -hmm. And as you can imagine, we are always trying to make sure that we are appreciative, respectful, and... Uh, in touch with our 11,000 volunteers, our 205,000 members. Because as you said, without them, conservation in America is not conservation in America. It's just... <laughs> uh,
1: ab- ab- absolutely. And it, it's I, I I had no intention of particularly picking on the Elk Foundation. Um, and I've had some disputes with the Elk Foundation. You know about that. I uh, But the Elk Foundation... There was an issue a few years ago. I think the Elk Foundation board made a bad decision. A number of people, including me, uh, editorialized about it, and they changed their mind, and that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah. Right. And so we get into these three topics, and I,
0: I don't know which one it disturbs me the worst. I think we're going to save the easiest one for last, <laughs> which is access, because that's quite obvious, and I want the audience to to stick around for the, the, uh, dessert yeah,
1: <laughs> <laughs> the <apple pie. laughs> they, they got to eat
0: their spinach and, and squash before we get to the dessert. But, uh, I want to talk about this and I've talked about it in prior podcasts. It's the outdoor media. Um, I'm part of it because I have a TV show. I have a podcast. I have a website that, you know, last year, half million different hunters were out on my website reading what's, what's there. I worry that we in the outdoor media have become so afraid of our own shadow that we cannot have honest discussions. And there's influences that channel us to almost a homogenous, sterilized, all are walking the same direction at the same step kind of path. And I don't care if it's hunting, if it's golf, if it's, uh, lawn mowing, anything, any activity in that you can think of. There are plenty of historical uh, places you can look that would demonstrate if you do not do your own introspection, if you do not challenge your own thinking along the way, if you just silence anybody who tries to Stretch the minds of those involved. History says you've got a short path.
1: I, I couldn't agree more, and uh, absolutely, uh, this is a problem for everyone in the outdoor media. There are certainly some welcome exceptions, and we've talked about that. Um, Ted Williams, uh, co- column in Fly, Rod, and Reel, he has right. been both their most popular, at least popular writer for 25 years now. But
0: to their credit, they let him be a, a absolutely. journalist.
1: Absolutely, And I think the leadership uh, comes from the head office of the publication, uh, and Ted's relationship with fly rod and reel is a is a prime example. Uh, Hal Herring has certainly done wonderful work. One of my the hats I wear is I edit or co-edit a, uh, a magazine called Traditional Bowhunter, and management has been great. Uh, they've let me write editorials about access and public lands sales and the threat of that and be openly critical of industry, but that's the exception rather than the rule. Right. Uh, I, th- I think we would agree. And I think that's dangerous. I, I couldn't agree with you more. It, it's extremely dangerous in a time when
0: media travels so fast in, in this digital world. It's extremely dangerous in a time when so many people are so busy that they have to rely on others for their information. Um. Uh, I I use a term called Zumboed.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Randy and I know exactly what that means. (laughs) Right.
0: And and those of you listening, um, Jim Zumbo is a friend of mine. Um, Jim and I sat on a board together for two years and he's a marvelous guy. Uh, Well respected, has done so much for hunting and shooting and and conservation. And when he was the editor-in-chief at Outdoor Life Magazine, he wrote a few sentences on a blog that, you know, Whether you agree with what Jim wrote or didn't agree with what Jim wrote, it doesn't matter. The point is, the next morning, his office was cleaned out. He was shown the door. And from that point, that, that was one of those, what I will call, critical points in the path where I think outdoor media said, holy shit, if Zumbo can get axed the next day for two sentences or three sentences, I better... I better take cover in the foxhole here. Taking risks, pushing the envelope of thinking, presenting new ideas or new perspectives are not going to be rewarded going forward was kind of the message that came of that.
1: Well, that's certainly the default position. Um, Controversy um, does not fly well in the outdoor press. It's easier to write. 10 tips to help you bag your buck this fall. <laughs> yeah, like we need more <laughs> yeah, of Like that. we need more of that. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, and again, there are certainly some welcome exce- exceptions scattered throughout the outdoor press, but they are the exceptions. Um, uh, for years, I've attended the uh, Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnership Annual Media Summit. And uh, last year, there was a, a, a panel uh, which received a question from the audience. Uh, I believe you were there, yeah, Randy, and, and someone asked, um, how can we re- report, uh, insightfully without fear of retribution? <laughs> I, I, I can't remember what the answer was, but I think the answer is, uh, right. Ten, <laughs> ten tips to help you bag your buck this fall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I remember actually, uh, I
0: was asked that question. Yeah, you were. Yeah, and I said, you know, I have the great fortune of owning my platforms. I can be independent in what I say and what I do, and the only person who can fire me is my wife. Mm -hmm. Uh, Kim, if you're listening to this, don't get any great ideas. (laughs) (laughs) But... The The real boss. And at the time when I started all this, when I had no idea it would grow to this level, but I did not realize how... Uh, what would you call it? Uh, how uh, muzzling others are because it is their livelihood. The, you know, what they do, what they write, what they say, pays their mortgage, and therefore, if someone puts a thumb on them, human nature is I'm going to have to be somewhat responsive to the pressures. Where I'm, I'm void of that demand. So, I <laughs> one, I'm thankful. Two. It, it requires Randy to take some actual time and, and thought to put myself in the shoe of the writer or the blogger or the TV person who doesn't have that luxury. But, but when I do that, I say, well, it's too bad. It's not that way that everyone doesn't have the luxury. But then I think about it out and say, think about it and say, you know what? Everyone should have that luxury, whether it's, they are the owner of the platform or not the owner of the platform. Because if, if someone is going to say columnist or blogger or TV person, you're going to sing the party line, not just in our publication, but anywhere you speak, anywhere you talk. If you're down at the bar having a beer with your buddies, you better be
1: singing the party line.
0: Boy, we're going to be a boring group. We're going to be more boring than
1: we already are. We sure are, and uh, that, that highlights one of the big problems for me with the Ducks Unlimited situation. In theory, to prevent what happened, I would have to contact the editor... Of every one of the twenty-five magazines I write for, every time I write something, and say, "Clear this. Make right. sure I'm not offending anyone important to you." That's the only way I could have prevented this. Right. And I, that's not journalism. That's not writing. That's no. That, that's <laughs> propaganda. <laughs> that's propaganda, and that's one of the things that's so disturbing about this incident to me.
0: That that to me that is that is it. That that gets to the core of if we are going to have an informed community of hunters and anglers as our issues get more complex as our lives get more stressed for time and we become more reliant on others for our information <sighs> there's not anything i can think of much more dangerous than the don thomas's of the world getting axed the jim zumbos getting axed and there, there's more of them that have been shown the door That is so unhealthy to where we need to be and how we're going to find a place to sit, to fit within society. I I don't know how any leader in the hunting, fishing, conservation community can look at me and argue that we need to have a homogenous message. Everyone needs to be saying the same thing. We all need to sing from the same sheet of music.
1: Well. It seems to me that we, we in the outdoor community, hunters and anglers, face more and more complex issues every day. Uh, every day. Every day. And um, to ignore or to stifle um, opinions uh, is to concede. That, that's exactly <laughs> yeah, it. it, it it's, it's to concede. Right. We're giving up. This <laughs> right, is too hard. Right. Right. And it won't be just a matter of people not hunting. It will be a matter eventually of industries collapsing. Right. Uh, uh, you know, I, I, I'm dismayed by the fact that industry hasn't picked up on this more. It's it, your livelihoods at stakes, folks. If you make shotguns or fly rods or right. whatever it is, actually the angling community has been much better uh, than the hunting community, in, in my opinion. Yeah. Uh, but uh, there's a whole lot at stake here. And if riders... Uh, are going to face retribution every time they tackle a controversial article, we're not going to fly into the next century. We, we are not. You're going to get instead of 10 tips of how to kill your buck, right. you're going to get
0: 15 tips of how to kill your buck. <laughs> That's progress, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. But you know, I've been in the last year, I've really been reading a lot about George Bird Grinnell. Mm-hmm. Fascinating guy. <laughs> such a, such a great story that I wish all hunters would read. And, uh, the, the book that I've found that does the greatest job of explaining his influence on hunting and conservation and wildlife in America and how he used his tool as the editor of, what was it called then? Forest, Forest, Forest and, and, and Stream. Forest, and, Forest Stream, and, Stream, and Stream. Now Field and Stream. Correct. He, he, at the time, was a lonely voice in the wilderness because it was the gilded age of the Rockefellers, the Morgans, the Vanderbilts. They had all of the political influence. They had all of the economic influence. And Grinnell was this guy who had, fortunately early in his career, had spent a bunch of time in the West mm. and it formed his idea of what America could be as far as our wildlife and our public lands. And here's this wealthy guy from back East. He said, I'm going to go and I'm going to take this job as editor of this magazine and I'm going to piss off a lot of people. And he did. And he did. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. It took him 20 years of fighting in Congress to get protection of bison from poachers in Yellowstone Park.
1: Yeah, Grinnell almost single-handedly saved the North American bison herd yeah. through his reporting in Forest and Stream. Right. Uh, reformed Yellowstone Park. Uh, it's, it's enforcement. I devote a chapter to him. I have to plug a book. House, House Forcemen, House Forcemen Save the World? Yeah. And I have a chapter in Grinnell. He's one of those names that doesn't pop up all the time, like Leopold and right. Roosevelt. But I think he's a, a paragon of... Using the press to champion worthy outdoor causes. Uh, And Forest and Stream was really the first publication that said, you know what, people, we shouldn't be shooting everything just because it's there. He really fostered modern concepts of hunting ethics at a time when that was not a popular thing to do. (laughs) No, this
0: was Manifest Destiny. This was, this is a shoot them all.
1: Yeah, this this is for the taking. We are
0: the victors and to us come the spoils. And I think about. If George Bird Grinnell and those who followed thereafter said, well, I don't want to piss anyone off. (laughs) I'm just going to go quietly about my business.
1: We wouldn't have any wildlife left in America. Exactly, Don.
0: And and here we are, 125 years later. (laughs) History is giving us another one of these periods within our identity as hunters where we're going to shape the path of where we're going, hunters, anglers, and conservation. And if we continue the trend of the last 10 years of beating on the media, of silencing them, of taking their, their pulpits or their pens away just because they point out something factual that happens to hurt someone's butt, we're, we're going to cast a future for those who come after us that's not
1: the past that was cast for us. I, I don't know how else to say that. Totally agreed. Um, and, and I think a free, unencumbered outdoor press is vital to the future of hunting and fishing in America. It's that simple. It, it, it is that simple. It, it's and, and So now I'm
0: going to change the order of sure. our of our topics to go to access because the point of access has a lot of tentacles that are tied to this unencumbered, free, well-spoken, outdoor press that converts or translates to a well-informed cadre of conservation hunter If If we are not able to give them the information independently, if we're not able to give them good information that they need to hear, whether it's what they want to hear or not, how can we expect them to be a
1: better citizen to the hunting angling community? Well, this is a key question, uh, and, and obviously uh, a major illustrative example right now is the move to disperse federal lands, public land. <laughs> Hello, Teddy Roosevelt is kicking in his grave right now. And when I first heard this idea, um, I had, well, this is crazy. It's not going anywhere. And uh, I'm an independent voter, by the way. I don't intend to turn this into a partisan discussion, but there it was, an official plank in the 2012 Republican National Party. And at that same TRCP conference I referenced earlier, uh, someone you may recall asked, well, how can we report this in a nonpartisan fashion? And from from a harrop, God bless her, said, what do you mean? How can you possibly not report it in a partisan fashion when it's all coming from one side of the aisle? And I'm not trying to turn this discussion into a, a political discussion. But the sad fact is all wildlife is political now. It is. It, it, Randy? It, it, it has it, become that We now. don't like it, but no. it is. That's right. And um, you know, to the point of hunter access, hunter numbers are declining. You're aware of that. We're we're all aware of that. And there's a lot of discussion. Uh, I think the animal rights movement gets far more credit than it deserves. They really haven't. Oh, they do. They didn't they haven't done much of anything. And it's funny how people will uh, get incensed and frothed and all worked up about uh, some stunt by PETA. Uh, That's not what's causing hunter numbers to decline. It's not single-parent households. It's not vegetarianism. It's access. Kids don't have a place to go hunting anymore. Right. And if these developments that we've been talking about come to pass, if there's no more public land or there's no more public access to public land, um, the entire industry uh, is going to collapse. It's it's as plain as the handwriting on the wall. It it is. And and that's not just… Don's opinion
0: or Randy's opinion that is supported by study after study. And I go back to the 2000, I think it's 2009 or 10, the national shooting sports foundation. And those of you who follow the podcast have heard me cite this before, but it's, it's that important. I'm going to give the citation again, the shooting sports foundation commissioned these studies and it got into very, very deep detail about what's, causing these issues related to lack of hunting participation or reduced hunting participation. And they asked the questions and you were allowed to give all kinds of different answers. And the most commonly cited answer for why people got out of hunting, in other words, they just quit and no longer are buying licenses, paying excise taxes, being advocates for our cause. The number one reason why they hunted less And the number one reason why people from a hunting background did not get into hunting, the most common reason given was the same across
1: the the spectrum, all demographics, all regions. Yeah,
0: It was lack of accessible places to hunt. And so, like you said, it's as plain as the writing on the wall. It's as obvious as the sun rising in the east and setting in the west. But... If you, Don, were to go and write an article or Randy was to make a blog post about where are some of these groups that claim to be hunting groups, where are they on this discussion of access? Where are they on this discussion of public lands?
1: And they're they're not here. They're silent.
0: Well, all hell would break loose.
1: I, well, let's... And bring it up right now on this podcast. Exactly. Uh, this is, it, it strikes right at the heart of the matter. Ducks Unlimited, since its inception, has taken the position that they don't get involved in politics, that they're purely a habitat organization. And right. that's been very convenient. Um, when the organization started in the dirty 30s, it uh, was legitimate because habitat was the issue. It was it. Uh, the country was drying up. We were going to lose all our waterfowl. Fair enough. That was a long time ago. Things have changed, and it is time, in my humble opinion, for the leadership of not just Ducks Unlimited, uh, but all of these organizations to recognize what is really bothering their grassroots members. Interestingly, uh, in the one official communication uh, that I received from Ducks Unlimited upon my termination, uh, they said, we don't take a position on stream access. Once the heat started... (laughs) To get turned up by grassroots people all over the country, all of a sudden, they were very much for stream access. The point is they're going to have to do something more than say, Oh, and by the way we we support stream access that isn't going to cut it at this point um, they're going to have to put themselves where their rhetoric is um, and it this is not problem is not just confined to ducks unlimited um, you know interestingly enough. Trout Unlimited went through a version of this a few years ago. They did. They initially said, you know, we're not going to get involved in that. We're just clean cleaning up water and making a place for trout. Um, their grassroots members said, wait a minute. you They're damn mutiny. Yes, you damn well better get involved in this. And they did. Right. To their credit. And they. my hope that this fiasco will produce a reformed attitude in the boardroom in Memphis of, of Ducks Unlimited. They need to listen to their members and they lead need to listen to what is bothering their members. And it's not conservation easements for rich people. No. It's it's access. That is what it gets to. And
0: everyone who follows Randy knows that whether I'm in D.C., whether I'm in a state legislature, whether I'm at home cranking on my keyboard or in front of my, my cameras doing TV, access is pretty damn important. Oh, you bet. It's... You know, I, and some of you have heard me tell this story. I lucked out. I grew up in Northern Minnesota. Uh, my parents divorced when I was 11 and for a while, my dad was out of the picture. Right, right. When I was at that point where hunting was going to be my future, I'd hoped. Um, and fortunately I had public land out my back door. Mm-hmm. My mom was a waitress during that period of time trying to raise three kids on what a waitress makes in a little country diner in a town of 500 people. How she did it, got through that window of time, I have no idea. But if I would have went to her and said, Mom, I need a dollar a day to go hunting, she would have said, I can't do that, Randy. I, I, I don't have that money. And then she would have went in her room and cried because she knew how much it meant to me. And that gets back to access. Because I had access of public lands out my back door, because all the kids in our neighborhood did, because of all of us, who became hunters and anglers had that access. That's what built us and brought us to the cadre of conservationists we are today. The, the people who are paying license fees, volunteering their time, their money, their, their advocacy. You take that access away and you don't have any of that.
1: Well, you're, you're so right, Randy. My, I guess my childhood was, uh, Different than yours. Uh, I, I grew up uh, in an outdoor family. But my dad and my mother, for that matter, both grew up dirt poor in Depression-era Texas. And my dad would always talk to me. He would go out and chop cotton in the sun as a kid for a dollar a day. And he'd use the dollar to buy a box of 22 shells. Now, my dad went on to win the Nobel Prize in medicine. I don't know whether you know that or I not. I did he not had, He had that. a very distinguished career. Wow. But he never forgot working uh, 12 hours in the sun to get a box of 22 shells. And a- the question of access never crossed his mind right. because all the kids in, in Mart or Prairie Hill, Texas could go out uh, and go hunting whenever they wanted. And that's what they did because they didn't have anything else to do. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I can remember when I first moved to Montana on the weekends, all the kids would all go out and go hunting. Right. They're not doing it anymore.
0: No, they. a lot of them no longer have... They don't ex- have a place to hunt. Right. Or if they do, it's 400 miles away. Right. It, you, you know, your 13-year-old isn't going to jump in your F-150 and no. drive to, from Bozeman to Glendive or drive from Bismarck to Botno, or drive from, sure. you know, Atlanta to Stone Mountain to go hunting.
1: It's all changed when I was uh, in Fort Peck uh, in the early 70s. uh, I kept track of the few places I couldn't hunt, not the places I could hunt. (laughs) (laughs) Because basically, uh, you know, I knew knew everybody (laughs) around and it was, you know, I didn't have to keep track of where I could hunt uh, and that's all changed.
0: It it has. And and so this gets me to when some organization who says they represent hunters Mm -hmm. and we see it all the time of. Whether it's our conservation groups, whether it's in, in, in my prior podcast, someone asked me this question and, and it had to do with the NRA mm-hmm. of where is the NRA on these access issues? Where is the NRA on these public land issues? Because this person who emailed me is a big donor to NRA, is a volunteer to NRA, and I I didn't know how to answer the question for him. I, and I said that on the podcast. I said, I don't have an answer for you. I, I don't know. Because I, I, my point is, if you say you are here representing hunters and you want the, the supposed credibility and leadership position that comes with that. But when the access discussion comes up, when the public land discussion comes up, you walk away and don't say anything? Bullshit. You are not leading hunters if you take a walk when they need you on access and public lands.
1: I've been through this uh, with a number of organizations. Uh, uh, Pheasants Forever is a great organization. I'm a life member. I write for their magazine. Mark Herwig, the editor, is a good friend of mine. I had to call Mark up three or four years ago and say, Mark, habitat is wonderful, but it doesn't do your grassroots members any good if they can't access it. And we had a long discussion and I think uh, I think PF is starting you know, they're starting to come around. They're, they're uh, doing good stuff. They're doing yeah. good stuff. Uh, interestingly, I just got back from South Dakota. <laughs> this is a bit of a tangential... You
0: said I can talk <laughs> about <laughs> I, anything. I,
1: I told Don any tangent is, is fair <laughs> well, game. Well, I've never hunted pheasants in South Dakota. I've hunted pheasants my whole life. I have friends there and I, I just got back yesterday and um, uh, here's uh, South Dakota to the legendary pinnacle of pheasant hunting in America, I I was hunting with friends who had grown up in this small town And what I heard is you should have been here five years ago. The politics have changed everything. CRP enrollment is down. Um, Ethanol has made people plow up uh, the little sloughs and all that. And there's some beautiful pheasant cover there compared to the cowed-out stuff that we hunt around here in Montana because they don't graze cattle there. But it's all in these little disjointed pieces uh, that used to be surrounded by 100-acre plots of CRP that provided – a you know, an infinitely secure habitat for pheasants. And the birds aren't there anymore. Now, PF, to its credit, has lobbied long and hard um, in in favor of CRP. But this is another example of how these organizations, all of them across the board, I'm not picking on anybody, but they have to realize that wildlife is political. And you can't say we're above politics, which has been DU's official stand for forever. Uh, And it's not going to cut it anymore.
0: Right. As I tell people, if you say you don't want to be part of politics, okay, guess what? The game is being played in the political field. So if you want to score a touchdown Mm -hmm. and the game is being played in the stadium called politics, you aren't going to score the touchdown by saying, I'm going to go out in the parking lot and wait. Right.
1: It's going to bypass you. you,
0: It's going to be over. (laughs) You aren't a player anymore. And so, you know, it, it, it's things like that, that just caused me to, to say, if, if our writers, if our leaders in in the outdoor media are not allowed to ring the bell, to make the call to action, that we need to focus on access. We need to focus on public lands. We got to call out those crazies in Congress and in state legislatures who are trying to screw us out of these public lands. If we, if our media isn't allowed to do that, that's terrible. That's, that's an outcome that's going to, as my one friend says, Randy, it's going to shit the bed. (laughs)
1: Well, one of the discouraging things about the last three weeks, there's been plenty of encouraging things, including this outpouring of support from grassroots folks all over the country. One of the discouraging things is the way that some of these other organizations circled the wagons. Um, And these are groups that I've worked with personally, uh, writing for them, uh, participating in their conferences, one thing and another. All of a sudden, guess what? They all have sponsorships from Ducks Unlimited and there were a lot of no positions, uh, we're not going to get involved, and uh, that's just discouraging, I think. It's it's frankly discouraging, and I've been disappointed in some people. Um, uh, you know, DU's a heavy hitter. Um, they have a huge budget, um, they have a lot of influence, they parcel money out, uh, and they buy influence. I, I don't know how else to say it. Um,
0: It's those kind of things that those of us who are involved in the media, Mm -hmm. we know that's going on. Mm -hmm. We, we see guys like you, we, you know, I I get forwarded emails from people who support me who say, Randy, this person is not happy with you. Mm -hmm. But fortunately my people have all said, we're with you. I, I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Um, and I'm with them because they're with me and the people I represent. But not everybody has had the same fortune I have had when
1: they've spoke out. Well, I will again return, um, and I'm not plugging anything, but traditional (laughs) bowhunter magazine, the little one that I work with, um, I've taken some very pointed positions and I've... Gotten some very pointed opposition to that. It's a credit to the people who run the magazine um, that they said, well, okay. (laughs) If if you're going to write anything other than Pablum, you're going to piss some people off let's face it. <laughs> and if you're not pissing somebody off, you probably aren't really doing your job, in my opinion.
0: Uh, As one friend told me, I, you know, some people who follow me know that when I was nominated for the board of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, it created a big stir. Bet it did. I'll and bet and it Don, did. you were one who reached out to me and said, "Ready? Hey, yeah. just stay yep. straight ahead. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. And a guy who I ran into is a was a former uh, pilot in Vietnam. And he pulled me aside and said, Randy, <laughs> you know, when you're over a very valuable target is when the flak gets really heavy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> That's a great analogy. That is,
0: that is a great analogy. But, but it's the same as your point of if you aren't rocking the boat a little mm-hmm. bit, if a few people aren't getting their feathers ruffled, are we just another 10 tips of how to kill your buck?
1: Well, and I don't want to be that, uh, you know, Jim, Zumbo. As you pointed out, eventually, sort of, did apologize. And, and you know what? I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, that's not. That's not in the books. Uh, I right. looked back over that article, and I but no, there, there's nothing I need to apologize for here. Yeah. And uh, you know, if people's feelings were the primary concern, maybe those people should have thought of the feelings of their neighbors when they moved here. Um, uh, this is this is not about feelings. <laughs> yeah, it's and and so getting back to the access discussion. Oh, sure. I I, I went off on a
0: tangent. No, that, that's fine. <laughs> I I just I cannot. I, I, you know, some people are like, "Granny, I get it. Get off the access thing." No, no, I'm not. I, no, the, these public lands, whether they're public, state lands, public, federal lands, whatever and I'm a life member of the NRA. I'm I'm very avid about my second amendment rights also. But these public lands to Randy Newberg are a cold dead hands issue. If yeah. if you think that you're going to pry these public lands from the hunters, anglers and citizens, whether they hunt or fish or not, of America while I've got a breath in my body, it, it ain't I
1: I'm going down fighting. Well, I agree. And this, back to your earlier question, uh, where's the NRA on this issue? Uh, I mean, I grew up with firearms. I own two dozen of them. I believe in the Second Amendment as much as anybody. Uh, where is the NRA? I, I, <laughs> you, you're asking me the same
0: question I got asked by the reader in an email, and I don't have the answer, Don. Mm-hmm. I do know this. I know when I go to D.C. and I lobby when I meet with delegates, whether it's a senator from New Mexico or from Montana, whether it's a policy leader from Michigan or, or Nevada, uh, public lands are a huge, huge issue and they're not telling me, oh, this group is making it a priority. Mm-hmm. It, it, and and so in some respects, the absence of the NRA interjecting in this public land debate mm-hmm almost is like quiet permission. Oh, for the wingnuts, the the bishops from Utah. Yeah. The the other folks who would get your public lands in the hands of other people so fast it would make your head spin. And and when they get a pass from a very powerful group that claims to represent hunters, that hurts us. They 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 take that as okay, I've got permission.
1: Well, you know, here we are and most of the West are, consists of red states. Um, how is this issue flying in places where public lands are uh, the heart and soul of why we live here? No how, how is it getting off the ground? <laughs> I don't understand it.
0: I, I, I don't, It's baffling. I don't either. I'm, you know, I think about in the West, in rural America, maybe it's an urban rural issue and not a West, you know, Midwest versus the coasts issue. But I don't know any politician in Montana, Idaho, Wyoming, Colorado, Nevada, even the most liberal are very good on guns.
1: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Why aren't they good on public (laughs) lands? That that baffles me. Well, you know, for years, if if, if you look back at politics during my lifetime, all a politician had to do to get the sportsman's vote is say, I support the NRA. Right. That's all they had to do. Right. And uh, with all due respect to what the NRA is defending, which I happen to believe in strongly, that can't be enough anymore. It's not. It's not going to be enough. Um, And, And for a politician to
0: say... I want to sell these public lands, but I'm good on guns. Yeah, yeah, where's that? Uh, That that, that doesn't, bullshit. Doesn't you We we have plenty of examples to show you that you can be good on guns Mm -hmm. and good on public lands.
1: Yes, Uh, they're not mutually exclusive. By a matter of fact, they should be inclusive. Abs, they should be joined at the hip. Right, when when you think about the fact that
0: all hunters I know, with very few exceptions, who are only archers, Mm -hmm. own firearms. Oh, yeah. When you look at the history of where many of our gun ownership and Second Amendment organizations came from, they came from, they're, they're, they started by mostly hunters. Sure. Don't leave us hanging out there, I guess is what I'm saying, yeah, is absolutely. please come and Use your stand clout. up. Use, Use your clout. Yeah. You, uh, some of these groups would scare the living hell out of the crazies who want to sell these public land. Mm-hmm. Do you think Rob Bishop from Utah, who leads the House Natural Resource Committee and is the biggest obstructionist to any public land policy of any person I've encountered, that's Randy's opinion supported by <laughs> his life experiences of interacting. If Rob Bishop got a phone call from one of the strong gun groups in D.C. that said, hey, Knock put, it a, off. put a cork in it, <laughs> yeah. do you think he's going to flip them the bird? No, not going to happen. No, So... It's as a hunter, as an angler, as, as a public land advocate, as an access person, I'm trying to figure out how do we raise the volume enough with our media to put, to bring that pressure to bear so that these politicians can't continue to do this. And that's gets me back to what happened to Don Thomas. Is our media being stifled, being told so much what they can and cannot do? that we cannot bring that kind of pressure to bear anymore in spite of the large
1: platforms we have. If you follow the threads far enough, and um, I'm not a socialist, (laughs) nor have I ever been a socialist, (laughs) but if if you follow the threads far enough, you eventually get to to money. And I think this is at the root of the problem in the outdoor media. Um, As you yourself pointed out, you don't have to worry about it. You own your own company. Uh, I'm, Fortunate enough to write for some magazines that are independent enough to give me a, a voice. Um, but magazines are very, very, uh, you know, the margin in the publishing business is not great. Right. And they're very aware of where their money comes from, which is, it's discouraging, except that it's so short-sighted, Randy. Right. Be- because it's all going to fall apart. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, you know, if if these things that we're talking about, the, uh, the the overturning of the North American model, the sell-off of federal lands, if these things come to pass, there isn't going to be any field and stream. There isn't going to be any federal arms. There isn't going to, you know, uh, where's the insight here? Right. We're being very short-sighted collectively.
0: We are, and, and I think we as a society... You know, as hunters, we are a cross section of society. Our society is, I, I would opine, has grown more short-sighted, and therefore hunters have. But the way hunters got to where we are today was by being different in our perspectives, in our horizons, than the rest of society. If, if you, those of you who read, go and read anything by Leopold. Go and read anything by Roosevelt. They talk about those yet unborn. Their horizon for their actions, for when the results would be tangible, was not tomorrow, wasn't next month, next year. It It was was generations and
1: centuries out. And Roosevelt is the classical example of that. We wouldn't have any of this without his foresight and determination. And he didn't care who he pissed off.
0: Huh. And look at him. He's on he's on Mount Rushmore. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, all the people
1: who were mad at him? Yeah, yeah. Rushmore. No, no, they never will be. <laughs> and
0: so this whole short-sighted thing really bothers me. I, I, I think you've hit something there, Don, that is dead on in, in the hunting world. If we want to continue to lay claim to our deserved and earned reputation as being long-term thinkers and having foresight. We better pull our head up and look further down the horizon than just the next step in the path. Yeah, absolutely. The, the horizon and the trail ahead is complicated, and we got to be looking that far ahead, not not just tomorrow, not just next week, but a lot of these things that are endemic to society, I think are permeating how how things are changing in the hunting world.
1: You know, I, I, I do sense some optimism here. Um, I've been around at this long enough to remember when hunters basically just wanted to go hunting. You know, they, they just really didn't want to be bothered. They weren't mobilized. Now, these threats are so big and so immediate What's happened on my email in the last three weeks wouldn't have happened 10 years ago. Correct. I would have got some G's on. That's too bad. Uh, you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. Um, and this firestorm would not have ha- happened. And the reason it happened, Randy, really, all, all I was was a, a, a match. None of this right. viral expression of outrage would have happened if the outrage hadn't been there in the first place. People have been pushed to the point where – you know, it's hell no, I'm not going to take it anymore. Right. And I don't think that would have happened 10 years ago.
0: No, I, I don't think so. And that's where I see a lot of really valuable things that is happening in society that we're adopting in the hunting world that excites me. And because some people are like, Randy, as many battles as you guys are always fighting, how can you wake up in the morning with a smile on your face? Well, first of all, I, when you're the village idiot, you smile. <laughs> your default <laughs> yeah. position is yeah, to that's smile. What you so, do, yeah. but. I look at a lot of these things and I look at the sharing of information and how that has brought a lot of really new people with new perspectives to the hunting world who are interested in the origin of their food, the quality of their food, interested in their landscapes and clean air, clean water. And they start doing their research via this instant communication thing we call the World Wide Web. And it gets their minds open to, you know what? This hunting thing is... This this is as organic as I could get.
1: Absolutely. You know, uh, 10 years ago, five years ago, hunting was about as politically incorrect as you could get. It right. was almost a taboo subject. And now people are eating venison, and, uh, you know, prominent figures who were not hunting five years ago are shooting their own food. Uh, you know, so there is, there's absolutely grounds for optimism in all this. Yeah. I, I mean, if you would have
0: told me that... <clears throat> Ten years ago that some guy was gonna start this crazy business called Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> and a couple of years after it goes public, he, he makes the announcement that he wants to go and go shoot a, his own yeah, food.
1: Yeah, uh, crazy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't have envisioned that no, ten years no, ago. I so, couldn't
1: I couldn't have envisioned it either.
0: I mean, here we are and it's there they're just a lot of really cool things that are happening and and I uh, some of our podcasts have talked about these really positive upbeat things. Every once in a while we get a stinker that we don't want to talk about, but we have to. And that's that's kinda what's brought us together on on this day, Don. And uh probably the last topic we have time for before the audience falls asleep is uh it get gets back to the money thing. Um I'm a CPA in my other life you're well disguised randy <laughs>
1: <laughs> i'm a pretty well disguised position yeah, too <laughs>
0: i'm sure if you and i walked
1: into a restaurant right now sounds said, like a joke a cpa and a doctor and a rabbi walk into a bar right <laughs> yeah
0: they would look at us and say yeah a doctor and a cpa right yeah, yeah. What, what beer you want but <clears throat> so i when, when i get to this point i you know i make my livelihood doing two things, helping people trade and sell their property rights and maximize their property rights and disinheriting the federal treasury. That, that, that's what I do for it. It's them. a great goal. <clears throat> and so I have nothing against money. Hey, I mean, you know, my, my one friend is, you know, he's an abundance thinker he, he, and he talks about everybody should have more money. Mm-hmm. It's just, they got to figure out how to do it. Right. Anyhow, when, when you talked about that threat of money, <clears throat> uh, it gets to the point of, and you and I talked about this: is when does my altruism of donating my time or money? When? What does that get me? Does, does it get me influence? Does it? Does it? And, and to those who accept those donations of time and money, whether it's in, uh, one large individual or a collective donation, whatever, where is that responsibility? Accountability? to that person, if any, or are you responsible and accountable to the mission that you represented that money would be used for?
1: Well, like you, uh, I have no problem with money. I I admire people who go out and work hard and and succeed financially. That's that's wonderful. As I said, I'm hardly a socialist. Uh, What bothers me is uh, not income disparity, at least within reason, but influence disparity. Um, I don't think that a wealthy donor to one of these conservation advocacy groups should have more influence over policy than any grassroots member as a matter of principle. And I believe that it's our responsibility as members of these organizations to be better informed than we have been. As I said, I don't know how Ducks Unlimited or anybody else selects their members. Some some of these groups um, have elections. And they have people state their views and people vote on them. And those are the people who become the directors. I think that a numerical majority of the boards of all these groups should be elected in that fashion. And I think grassroots members uh, need to know who's who's leading this organization. What are their beliefs? And we've all been collectively guilty of a certain degree of laziness, let's face it. Um, And we need to become better informed. We need, as grassroots members, to be informed and not let the distant leadership of these organizations we support dictate policies that are antithetical to what we believe. Uh, I think that's key, uh, central to the whole discussion. Yeah, and
0: and I think we, uh, and when you say we're all, we've all been lazy at times. You know, I think about the last time the NRA sent me my board election ballot. Yeah, I didn't send it in. Yeah, I I, yeah. I, I was on the road, and so who's Randy to complain if he didn't vote? Right? Exactly. So, exactly. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm not uh, preaching. I've been uh, guilty of it too, yeah, uh, uh. and and so, but with that, I think you you make a good point. We who are donors, we whether it's our donning, donating of our time, our talent, or as one guy says, time, talent, or treasure, you have a responsibility to hold people accountable to what did they sell you. In other yeah. words, what did they represent their mission and their work to be that they would use your talent, time, or treasure for? And when that doesn't parallel, when that, when that doesn't, jive, whatever term you want to use, it's people got to stand up and yeah, say, hey. Uh,
1: couldn't agree more. This, this couldn't is, agree more. This isn't
0: what we were sold.
1: And as I said at the beginning of this discussion, my my argument is not with the staffers or the volunteers of Ducks Unlimited who have done wonderful things since 1937 or 8 or whenever it was. Um, uh, my complaint is that the leadership has grown out of touch with the views of its membership and it's time for the membership to write the ship, yeah, yeah, and that's
0: that's yeah i am I think that's the core of what what we've been talking about here, Don, and uh we're getting ready to wrap up um before we ask Don for his final thoughts, his closing thoughts and and guys always ask me. That, uh, oh, my closing thoughts usually revolve around marital advice.
1: So, <laughs> <laughs> are you giving it or receiving it? <laughs> uh,
0: well, I give it and then I receive a lot of it after yeah, people yeah. hear it. But, uh, <clears throat> so, uh, all of you who listen to this, um, if you want to follow not just this podcast, but, our forum, the HuntTalk.com forum, which is huge. We we have so many threads out there on the HuntTalk forum that relate to this podcast, and we try to make it interactive by taking as many of your questions as we can. Um, go out to RandiNewberg.com. You're going to find out about our TV show, Fresh Tracks, that is on Sportsman channel. You're going to find out about our new YouTube channel that's going to launch really soon. Um, you're going to hear about this podcast, Randy Newberg Unfiltered. And a whole lot of other things. So that's, uh, that's Randy giving the pitch, uh, that is required to keep the doors open. Uh, I've not received any large six figure donations for my <laughs> charitable <laughs> endeavors, Don. So I got, I got to take at least 30 seconds and do those things. So <laughs> that's,
1: that's okay. I'd plug my books, except I
0: can't remember them.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so with that. Don's going to give his, his final thoughts of whatever it might be whether he's going to ask you to do something whether he's going to uh, whatever whatever profound
1: comments you have. Gee I thought we just had an hour and a half of <laughs> 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 profound <laughs> comments. Uh, well I uh, in, in many ways um, uh, I, in many ways I feel conflicted as Randy said about the events of the last three weeks. Um there's no doubt about that, and I've I think I've been over backwards to make it clear that uh, this issue is not about me. Uh, I'm not a disgruntled former employee. I never was an employee. Um, but I, I I think these events have brought to light a lot of underlying issues that need to be addressed, and the people who address them are the people who are listening to this podcast. Because uh, the authority ultimately does lie with us, by us I mean everyday hunters of everyday means, and we don't have to put up with this, we don't have to put up with stifling the outdoor press, we don't have to put up with the threat of public lands going away. Um, I will put in one plug for the Public Land and Water Access Association here in Montana. It's a small, all-volunteer grassroots group, and uh, all they have done is fight for access to public land, land that we already own in which access has been illegally denied by arrogant private landowners we no one has suggested interference with private property rights we simply want what we already have and plwa uh, has done an amazing job of keeping access to public lands open uh, for montana residents and non-residents alike and it's an organization that uh, deserves a lot of support and needs a lot of support and i would be remiss if i didn't mention them at the end of this podcast
0: uh, that's a very good point, Don. And a lot of you who don't live in Montana email me and say, how do how do I do something? How do I make a difference? What what can I do? And, and I
1: guess if access is your issue, you could look at PLWA
0: sure, and say, a, how, how
1: do I do this in my state? Exactly. And for that matter, look at our stream access law. It's not copyrighted. <laughs> Right, yeah, exactly. Take it to and your legislature.
0: Was, you know, the, the Montana Stream Access Law, wasn't it just three pissed off fishermen? Yeah, <laughs> that's how it started. I, I mean, it, and if you if you ever go to Butte, America, some of you call it Butte, Montana, but here, if you for, are from Butte, you say you're from Butte, America. Yeah, Weren't those three guys from Butte? I, I think they were from and, Butte. And if Butte. If
1: not, they should be honorary citizens. They, at they, they were from Butte. I mean,
0: Butte <laughs> is a colorful place. If ever there was a colorful place, it's Butte, Montana. And thank God we have the Butte, Montana of the world. Um, but those guys said, you know what, we're not going to put Hell up with Hell no, this. we're not
1: going to put up with it. And
0: yeah. they went and did it. They got a citation, and that's what yeah. forced the issue.
1: Yes, it was a landowner was stringing barbed wire across a, a fence, and one of the landowners who was doing that is actually a distant relative of my lovely wife, Lori. <laughs> what a family I'm married into. <laughs> and Lori, speaking of marital advice, I have to say my, my wife, Lori, is a – Avid outdoors woman an excellent shot with a shotgun and a bow and an excellent fly rod fisherman. And my only marital advice is marry somebody like Lori. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I, I, I can assure you that Don is not saying that because she's standing here no, looking woman, at him. No, no, no. It, she is accomplished in her own right in, in many respects. So, well, my closing comments, Don, are, are just a thanks to you for. For taking the time to talk to me, first of all, but to articulate what is the bigger picture here? what What is the real issues at stake? And like you said, it's it's not Don and his back column in a magazine. It's not specifically Ducks Unlimited. It could be any conservation group. It could be any large nonprofit group and, and not just conservation. It It's a multitude of things. Um, so I want to thank you for that. And, uh, the, the other, I I guess my closing thought is since I just wrapped up 80 some days sleeping in tents and eating crappy meals, I just got off the road here filming another season. People say, how does your wife put up with that? (laughs) (laughs) Here comes the marital advice. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) And, uh. First of all, it cost me a lot of trips to Vegas because <laughs> she she's a Vegas girl. She graduated from Valley High School in Vegas, and her parents oh, still geez. live there. So, and, and I have a complete distaste for Vegas, but <laughs> so, so I tell her to go on her own. But I, I, when we built our new house, and I and I told one of my friends this, who was kind of trying to figure out how can I hunt more, and I said, "Dude, here here's what I did." And his wife happened to be standing there. And so when we built our new house in 2004, I told my wife, I said, you know what, I'm really not into new furnishings and all of the, you know, couches and new this and new that and paintings on the wall. But if it's what you really want, I'm, I'm going to take whatever the budget is to build this house, I'm going to tack on 15% and you go spend it how you want. And I won't say a word. I just don't want like polka dots or something. And she said, what's the catch? (laughs) I said, what, what satisfaction you're going to get from that is the same satisfaction I get from hunting a lot. Mm -hmm. And she said, you got a deal. (laughs) And really, I didn't think she'd take the deal. I thought she'd kick me in the shins or something. (laughs) And, uh, she took it and someday she'll be like, like yesterday was the last day or two days ago, the last day of Montana, uh, big game season. And she heard about that. She read it or heard it on TV. She's like, today's the last day of hunting season and you're home. What's up with that? <laughs> you must have been tagged out. <laughs> yeah, I, I was. So I, I didn't want to tell her that. I, I lied and I said, well, honey, we've been gone a long time. I just want to sit around the house with you and the dog and da da da. So anyhow, my marital advice is whether by, by promises, by, by finances, whatever. Those of us who get to hunt a lot more than you think is reasonable, we probably had to make some deal to get there. And everybody who's made that deal,
1: I think, figures it was a good deal. Well, Randy, if hunt talk ever gets boring, you can start a new career as an <laughs> advice column. You can be the Ann Landers of the outdoor world.
0: <laughs> oh, Don, I hope we get to do this again we will. sometime. We will. Thanks so much for yeah. your time and And those of you for listening, thank you so much. I hope you'll share these podcasts with your friends because the more people know about the podcast, the greater off or the the better off it is for us, the more profile we get. Thanks for listening from Lewistown, Montana, Don Thomas, Randy Newberg. We thank you much.